Welcome to Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live, March 2018. We're going to discuss our journal article called An Update on Fatalities Due to Venomous and Non-Venomous Animals in the United States from 2008 to 2015 and give you an article on diagnosing. That is to say, truly diagnosing brown recluse spider bites. Then, We'll go to the Everest region of Nepal to discuss guided climbing. Yes, folks, quite a controversial topic. However, there is a school in Fort St. Nepal that has turned guided climbing upside down for the good. So we're going to go visit the Kumbu Climbing Center and observe for ourselves how both Sherpas and Western Guide Companies are mitigating the risks involved, as well as showing you how the local climbing guides are being transformed professionally into incredible mentors for up-and-coming guides. You don't want to miss this one. We will briefly discuss guided climbing, then end with practical tips for working as an expedition doctor on high-altitude expeditions. So, let's go now. First, let's catch up with Dr. Joe Forster, one of the authors of the article, An Update on Fatalities Due to Venomous and Non-Venomous Animals in the United States from 2008 to 2015. Hey, Daryl. Thank you for the invitation to talk about our work on the podcast tonight. Um, both my brother Jared Forster and I are general surgery residents at Stanford. We both grew up in Colorado and spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I'm a graduating chief resident, and he's a rising PGY-3. In addition to my general surgery training, I completed the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellowship in 2015, and after surgery residency, I'm going to be completing a fellowship in trauma critical care. Where are you going to go? Do you know? I'll be uh, sticking around here at Stanford. I'm actually developing an international acute care surgery fellowship. What was the driving force that picked your interest in doing this paper? Well, first and foremost, I was interested in understanding how great a threat wild animal attacks were to people participating in outdoor activities. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the wilderness doing expedition kayaking and climbing trips, and late at night walking through the woods alone, I not infrequently wonder what is out there watching me, considering me for the next meal. Turns out most of those fears are pretty much unfounded. Give us a summary of why you did the research. Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of unrealistic and negative perceptions of the risks associated with wild animals. I know that I carry some of these misperceptions myself. You know, some of these are promoted through popular culture and media, and some of these misperceptions are just fear based on the unknown. You know, isolated encounters where individuals are attacked or killed by unprovoked animals tend to generate a lot of media attention. For example, the death of the two-year-old boy in uh, Disney is uh, a great example of that. And while tragic, uh, events like this are pretty rare. Now, my brother and I went into this project expecting that wild animals would cause the majority of deaths, but the opposite ended up being true. Now, this paper is a follow-up on a manuscript that we published in 2012 looking at fatal animal encounters from 1999 to 2007. In the manuscript we've just published, we sought to identify any changes in the epidemiology of these fatal animal encounters in the U.S. And how did you all collect the data? So uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention actually maintains uh, this database called the Wide-Ranging Online Data for Epidemiologic Research, or WONDER database. And essentially what this database is is a compilation of death certificates uh, at the county level. And we focused on an eight-year time period from 2008 to 2015, uh, following up from our last study. And we extracted demographic data for all deaths that occurred as a result of an animal counter, be that a bite, attack, envenomation, or just simple contact. Uh, we ended up excluding deaths that occurred as a result of a transportation injury, such as riding an animal or a car hitting an animal. And to better understand who's at risk for these animal encounters resulting in death, we analyzed the data by type of animal, age, race, sex, and region of the country where the death occurred. Uh, we ended up standardizing the death rates using the U.S. population uh, from the U.S population in 2011, and all data was age-adjusted. Just briefly, what were three major points that you found in this study? Yeah, so the first point, and then the one I think that's kind of most pertinent to folks who practice wilderness medicine, is that most of the deaths are actually not due to wild animals, uh, like mountain lions, wolves, bears, or things like that. Most deaths are a result of encounters with farm animals, dogs, bees, wasps, and hornets. Wow. So all, 
Yeah. <laughs> so while yeah. it's important that people recreating in the wilderness know what to do when they encounter a potentially dangerous uh, wild animal, the actual risk of death is really quite low. The second point is that, you know, bees, wasps, and hornets can be deadly. And while they're small in certain, circum in certain circumstances, encounters can be lethal. Specifically, for people who are allergic, rapid administration of epinephrine and Benadryl is critical, as is transport to a medical facility. And kind of over the last 20 years, Africanized honeybees uh, have come onto the scene and may be particularly lethal when they swarm. And they are increasingly common in the southern and western United States. The third point is that animal encounters among young children or the elderly, or the elderly may be particularly lethal. Importantly, knowing these points, there are sound prevention efforts that uh, can be undertaken to reduce this risk among these age populations. Well, you, you mentioned that you had done a previous study. So how did the findings in this particular study differ with respect to the last publication you did a few years ago? Yeah, un unfortunately, not much has changed for the better. Um, animal encounters in what should be controllable situations, such as encounters on the farm or in the home, accounted for the majority of the deaths. You know, little in the way of public health policy in the farm workplace has changed since our previous paper. And even more saddening, the continued burden of animal encounters upon young children has kind of continued unabated. Among children four years of age or younger, the fatality rate of 4.6 deaths per 10 million persons after a dog encounter was still fourfold higher than any other age group. And it's particularly sad because these are preventable deaths. Okay, three points. Most deaths are not due to lions, tigers, and bears, but farm animals, dogs, bees, wasps, and hornets. The risks of death going out into the wilderness is quite low. Secondly, bee wasps hornets are little, little, but encounters can be lethal. Africanized honeybees, particularly lethal. Epinephrine and evacuation are the mainstays of treatment. Encounters at the extremes of age are particularly lethal. Farm and home encounters can be deadly. Unfortunately, the rate of childhood deaths in kids four years or less with domestic animal encounters are about five per million, but it hasn't decreased much in the last few decades. And there are some definite public health policies that are needed. You know, I want to delve further. So it looks like you guys found that non-venomous injuries accounted for most of these deaths. And it looks like, yeah, the majority of these were classified as other mammals. And I think you were alluding to that. But, you know, some of the other mammals, does that mean bear bites, cows? I mean, cow bites. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, you're, you're definitely correct. <laughs> a, a, cow, a cow bite uh, could could be lead to a, an interesting movie uh, down the road. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> you have a horror flick. But yeah, I mean, you're you're totally correct. I mean, non-venomous injuries accounted for the majority of deaths. 924 or 57 percent of the 1,600 deaths were due to non-venomous animals, and most of these were due to the category of other mammals or dogs. Now, the, the other mammals category is something of a catch-all category, but it's mostly composed of farm animals such as horses, cows, and other livestock. And while the ICD-10 coding that we use doesn't break this category down further, previous research has helped narrow down this category. That being said, specifying it further in uh, future iterations of the ICD-10 classification would be pretty useful in help, helping identify specific high-risk farm animals. Dogs. What kind of issues did you encounter? Is this uh, an issue in the wilderness that's important? Uh, so in the in the U.S., it's not as much of an issue in the wilderness. Overseas, it may be, but unfortunately, you know, our data didn't really cover that. And the granularity in the uh, CDC Wonder data didn't really allow us to partition out dog attacks that occurred in the wilderness and those that occurred domestically. However, the demographics of the people uh, killed suggest that most of these injuries are occurring in domestic situations. Again, the highest mortality is seen among children four years of age or less. And there are a number of prevention tactics that parents can employ to prevent dangerous ch child dog encounters. Uh, there's actually a great uh, website on the CDC. You can just Google healthy pets, healthy people uh, and CDC and follow the links uh, to dog bite prevention. 57% of 1,600 deaths are from non-venomous animals, from dogs or other mammals, such as cows and other livestock. Dogs in the wilderness, at least in the U.S., are not a big concern. The big concern is a dog at home plus a little child. Healthy pets, healthy people. That's the CDC prevention site that Joe mentioned. And did you get to look at deaths due to rabies? So we didn't actually look at deaths specifically due to rabies in our analysis, but uh before the, prog uh, before the podcast, I just did a quick search of the Wonder database, and uh, over the eight-year time period that we were looking at, there were only 15 rabies-related deaths reported. So 
the number of animal coroners that actually resulted in rabies infection was uh, pretty low. We can't get away without talking about these venomous animal deaths. So I would have thought that snake bites would have been number one, but no, this hymenopteran venomations, they were 10 times as great, according to what I read. And you guys hypothesized that there was a true increase in hymenoptera-related deaths with concomitant improved treatment of venomous spider and snake bites through increased availability and use of antivenom when needed. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more on that. Yeah, definitely. So you know, I think there are two reasons that we suspect that the hymenoptera envenomation is more commonly a cause of fatality. You know, first and foremost, people are just exposed a lot more frequently to bees, wasps, and hornets than they are to venomous snakes. Now, hymenoptera are geographically dispersed throughout the U.S., and venomous snakes have more specific uh, distributions generally. Plus, most people tend to try and stay away from venomous snakes when they're encountered in the wilderness. You know, the notable exception, exception to this is the, you know, the, quote, tease of snake bites. You know, mm. Testosterone, T-shirts, <laughs> tequila, trucks, tattoos. Wow. There's a certain demographic that tends to uh, deviate toward, towards venomous snake. Interesting. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is that, is that actually in the literature? Uh, that's no, that's kind of just a, a, a personal uh, observation. <laughs> An anecdotal. Nice. I like that. Nice. But, you know, bees, wasps, and hornets can be a little bit more difficult to avoid and are more frequently encountered by a broader range of people. Then the second point is that supportive care for patients who are envenomated by venomous snakes continues to improve. You know, there's increased experience and increased uh, availability of uh, Crofab or the polyvalent uh, antivenom. And overall, critical care has gotten a lot better. So I think that the frequency of deaths due to snake envenomation will continue to decrease over time. Well, do you have any updates on some substitutes for the EpiPen that after that crazy price hike that may end up increasing these numbers? Yeah, so there there are definitely some uh, some substitutes for the EpiPen that have uh, now hit the market. Uh, there's a, a three of them, at least, that I'm aware of are Simjepi, AdrenaClick, and AviQ. Um, I think regardless, uh, the price increase is shocking, and hopefully our research will help to highlight the need for more affordable prices for this medication. I think the bottom line is the most important thing for wilderness providers to recognize are the signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis and be competent and trained in whatever auto-injector they use, kind of irrespective of the brand. Well, Joe, thanks for chatting with us. This has been very informative, and good luck next year on that incredible trauma fellowship. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Daryl, for the opportunity to discuss our research. And if any listeners have any further questions, uh, please uh, don't hesitate to email either myself or my brother. Hymenopterous stings are 10 times worse than venomous snake bites. It's more common because there's more bees and wasps around. And, you know, people generally try to avoid snakes, but those little buggers, they just come right on you. The teeth and tequila ratios with snake bites. <laughs> Need I explain more? Well, our knowledge and our availability of Crofab antivenin has decreased snake bite mortality. But you also want to know how to use auto-injectors or epinephrine injection. The dangers are dogs, especially in small children, cows, maybe horses, and of course bees, wasps, and hornets. Although ants are also hymenoptera, I don't think they were found to be killers in the study. Okay, folks, we're talking about bites and stings, so let's stay with it a little bit and let's talk about recluse spider bites. The article that I'm going to discuss briefly is from the American Medical Association, JAMA, Dermatology, May 2017. And the title is called Not Recluse, in capital letters, N-O-T-R-E-C-L-U-S-E, which is a mnemonic device to avoid false diagnoses of brown recluse spider bite. The author is Stoker, and this is a dermatologist, and so this is pertinent. However, just warning, it is not a study per se. It is more of an opinion paper. But, of course, there aren't a lot of studies on loxosidolism. What you talking about, Willis? And for the clinical diagnosis, I think this is a very interesting paper. So we do know that the brown recluse spider, or otherwise known as loxosidolism reclusa, has resulted in many misdiagnoses, many People will say, oh, I've been bitten by that brown recluse spider. Well, you know what? This misdiagnosis can occur quite frequently throughout North America. Now, loxosalism is typically diagnosed clinically, even though there is a diagnostic recluse venom test. Now, I don't happen to have one here, and most likely you don't either. But 
Considering the abundance of recluse bite and misdiagnoses, the medical community, obviously us, would benefit from some kind of an approach. So the author devises this clever mnemonic, not recluse, and it stands for N, numerous, O, occurrence, T, timing, R, red, center, E, elevated, C, chronic, L, large, U, ulcerates too easily, S, swollen, E, exudative, and so here you have it, folks. Numerous occurrence, timing, red center, elevated, chronic, large ulcerates, too easily, swollen, and exudative. Let's go through these individually. A, B, C, D, E is for elephant. No, no, no. It's N-O-T-R-E-C-L-U-S-E. N, numerous. Now, a typical recluse bite is not numerous. It is a single focal lesion, not a bunch of lesions. If you have a bunch of lesions, think about contagious bacterial infection. Think about herpes zoster. Think about pyoderma, gangrenosum, poison ivy, poison oak, arthropod bites, such as those beautiful fleas, bed bugs, and various mites that you may encounter. I sure hope not. Whoa. Oh, occurrence. Muy importante. The most common circumstance surrounding occurrence of a recluse bite involves disturbance of that poor little secluded recluse spider. They might be hiding in a box, in a closet, attic, or garage, or in clothing, long unused or left on the floor. Maybe it's in a bed, but eh, maybe not. A lot of people might have their MRSA, or they may have been gardening, which suggests sporotrichosis. So that's N and O. No. Now let's talk about the T, the timing. Well, if you've got credible bites outside the April to October recluse activity season in North America, not likely. So the timing is important between April to October. Red, red center. Listen to this. Recluse venom causes immediate destruction of the capillary bed with resulting ischemia. So the central area of that bite is going to be pale. It's going to be blue-white or purple, and very, very rarely with mild bites will be red. So red center, eh, not likely. So if you've got a lesion with an inflamed red central area, think about another arthropod bite or sting, please. Think about streptococcal cellulitis or even something weird, weird, weird such as anthrax. But recluse spider bite, probably not going to have that red center. Let's talk about elevated. Listen, if the lesion is elevated, it ain't recluse spiders, according to these folks here. Any area raised more than one centimeter above the normal skin is not, is not, is not a recluse bite. Chronic. Only the largest, most gigantic recluse bites are not healed in three months. So it's not going to be chronic. Are you with me? Barbara, you up? Barbara, you up? I'm up now. I don't think I can sleep. Large? No, not large. I'm sorry. The most dynamic recluse bites typically do not exceed 10 centimeters. Now, 10 centimeters, that's pretty big, but still not bigger than 10 centimeters. Ulcerates too early? Well, guess what? Recluse bites do not ulcerate too early. In fact, according to the author... These bites do not typically ulcerate until 7 to 14 days, 1 to 2 weeks, folks, post-envenomation. What about swelling? Do they swelling? Well, recluse bites typically do not cause massive swelling below the neck. But bites to the face, sure, they can develop significant edema. But if it's on the arm, if it's on the torso, probably not going to be swollen. However, the authors do state that if you have an envenomation to the foot, you can have significant swelling. Otherwise, think of things such as streptococcal cellulitis, hymenopterous sting, or a bacterial infection in your differential diagnosis. Lastly, exudative. No, no pus. No pus. Recluse bites are not initially exudative. They're not initially moist, nor are they purulent, except those bites on the eyelids and toes. So pus formation indicates bacterial infection and is probably the first negative sign, excluding luxosalism. And to top it off, if you have two or more of the not-recluse, N-O-T-R-E-C-L-U-S-E signs, well, a recluse bite is even less likely. 
I invite you to read the paper if you're interested. But there it is, a useful mnemonic for luxosilism, or not. Please rise. Now sit on it. High in the Himalayas of Nepal, near the beaten track to Everest, there's a humble pastoral village called Fort Say, perched among the clouds. You may not see it as you trek up that precipitous path more traveled, past Tangboche Monastery, and beneath the breathtaking pyramid of Amadablam. But look to your left, across that gaping gorge of the Dude Kosi River, and you will see a terrace knoll dotted with stone structures. It is there, in the shadow of the giant peaks of the Everest region, above a quiet birch forest, that the Kumbu Climbing Center found a home. Founded in 2003, the Kumbu Climbing Center, the KCC, is meant to increase safety margin of Nepali climbers and those high-altitude workers by encouraging responsible climbing and medical first responder practices in a very supportive and community-based program. Now, the early classes worked with groups such as the so-called icefall doctors, Sherpas who set routes and fixed lines and ladders across hazardous areas across the infamous Kumbu Icefall of Everest. The KCC has become a very successful vocational program for Sherpas and other Nepali groups that are already or have become hired by guide companies that take people up Everest and other mountains. Each winter, for a couple of weeks, technical climbing skills are taught along with English language, mountain safety, rescue, and wilderness first aid and self-care. The KCC is a nonprofit organization under the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation in memory of Alex. But I want to give you a little flavor of the KCC. And so what I did is I interviewed a few people this January 2018 while up there teaching. In the interviews, you'll hear from a few of the Nepali guides on what they're doing at the KCC. And to find out how these guides are mentored into becoming professionals, how they learn medicine. And then we're going to take the big picture and discuss the future of climbing in the area with many famous, famous people. Lakpa Norbu Sherpa gives his perspective on what it really means to become a KCC guide. He's made many ascents on Everest and other mountains and is a legend in the Kumbu Valley. He's the assistant director for the climbing school and transformed the KCC English program into a high standard that is relevant to mountain tourism industry. He turns the guide aspirants into naturalists. He has a successful business and he is a philanthropist in his own right. So here we go. Lakpa. I'm Lakpa Narvashepa from Namche, and uh, I have been in the tourism field for almost uh, more than three decades, and I'm from the mountaineering family. Now I'm uh, engaged with uh, KCC program as a assistant operation director and English director. In the beginning, the Sherpas were climbing is a part of job, and uh, that time they don't understand what is climbing, and they don't even understand the you know the climbing is uh, one of the uh, challenging uh, challenging what do you call that? Uh, Just the a game. lack of professionalism. professionalism. Yeah, sure. And uh, in the beginning, Sherpas were uh, faring low. Their job is just like a faring job up and down. Uh, of the mountain slope because uh, physically they are strong. All the you know the guides are coming from the western world. Even though we have a mountain in our garden, and uh, now we develop one by one our skill. Like a lot of Sherpas now become a mountain guide instead of the mountain high altitude porter. And beside the mountain guide, we also uh, in the KCC we teach a lot of uh, different. Uh, you know, subjects like uh, flora and fauna, mountain environment, geography, to be a good, uh, even a good trekking guide. Sounds like you're doing more than then teaching them how to be good, safe climbing mountain guides. They learn about ornithology, about the birds, like we talked about the other day, the flora and fauna, the geology, the weather of the Kumbu region. That's amazing. Is it difficult, or do you find that the students actually enjoy knowing more about 
the nature of the Khumbu Valley? In the beginning, you know, there are very few tourists are visiting Nepal, and we don't need much knowledge uh, about the this kind of culture and flora fauna. Uh, their only goal is uh, go to Everest Base Camp and go back, or go to Gokyo and go back. But now, uh, you know, the tourism has uh, the number has increased, and I, as I see the number of 2017, I more than uh, 50,377 tourists visit within uh, 2017. So a lot of tourists are coming for learn something. They are interested in. A, they are not not uh, basically climbing, but uh, they are coming for uh, you know the uh, share the uh, culture, uh, study the geography, uh, flora and fauna. That's why we started this this class here. Krishna Shrista is one of the lead Nepali climbing instructors at the school, who I caught up with during lunch. He talks about an interesting concept that includes an idea of fair trade practices for local guides and porters with a retirement plan. Pretty cool, huh? These pretty amazing ideas are not only teaching the local guides how to take care of themselves technically and medically, but also financially. Krishna Gopal Sreshta, originally from Solukumbu. I lived in Kathmandu for 15 years, and I'm director of Nepal Fair Strip Trek, and I'm serving in KCC as a mountain uh, environment director. Krishna, why did you start your own guiding company? I worked for um, many other co- uh, companies. I started as a porter, and I have seen many problems Many companies, they just take our money from the clients and they are not giving back to who are real needy, who works for. So I started, for example, the porters are sometimes, they are working just for food, they are not saving anything, and that was not fair for me, and I started, okay, I will give a try. To start, if they are working for a long time, they are carrying 30, 50 kilo whole day, then they, if they are not saving, that's not fair. We should treat those people who, who is working hard. They need to get fair conditions in a working place and also uh, in a wages. Like fair trade. Fair trade. That doing? Yeah. Great. Yes, because for a climbing Sherpa to work, it's hard on that person, it's hard on the family. So that's great. Idea. Yeah. That's, uh, people, people, uh, from Nepal who are working for, you know, tourism, uh, especially who is uh, going in a field trip, they are not, they could not work forever. Uh, probably they, they are working for 20 years actively, then they couldn't go. They might retire emotionally and physically, and if they are not saving anything, what gonna they do? We don't have a really uh, social system. They, many of them, they, uh, most of them, they, uh, they don't get any pension in a retirement, so it's hard. And simply, uh, I had a concept just when they are working, they need to save something. They should not work just for the food. That's how I'm working. I'm trying my best. I like it. Yes, yeah, like an investment for their retirement. So rather than just taking a brand new lead instructor and sending that person off with their group, we want to develop a new program to help coach them, to help mentor them through that transition. That was a co-director, Steve Mock, during one of our instructor meetings. He discusses mentorship. It is what we are all tasked to do medically in technical rescue, thanks to our friends at Rigging for Rescue, Dave Schumann and Philippe Wheelock, and in just, well, being. All of us were, in effect, mentors. Models for these guys' aspirants who are tasked with providing clients with a safe and memorable experience. 
and heading up the mentorship, not only for our Nepali friends, but all of us instructors is David Berger, a renowned climber in his own right, who also trains CEOs likewise. This short talk can give us several insights on how we can improve our practices individually as well as enrich our personal lives. Hi, my name is David Berger. I'm a recovering alpinist. Love being in the mountains. Here I am in Fortsi, Nepal, to teach Sherpa how to climb. You've been climbing for several years. Everest 2003, Amadablam, you've guided many people. And here you are in the middle of this small village called Fortse, you're helping mentoring Sherpas who go to Everest. Why should this be done, and how does one actually mentor climbing Sherpas? Well, um, <clears throat> it's a good question. Mentoring is about sharing experience. Now, some of the Sherpa have climbed Everest several times, and so you'd think they have more experience than you do. But we mentor from our own experience and coach from their own experience. We try to help them help themselves at building on skills they already have from their starting points. And mentoring is more about sharing the big picture. In other words, they're very good at technical skills, but not always good at leadership skills where they need to see a whole picture of what's going on, lest they miss something that ends up being a hazard. So we do a lot of mentoring about subjective hazards, how clients will be emotionally driven, and not very rational, which is not a good idea up high. Are you talking about the emotions of a client driving the agenda, summit fever or whatnot? Yeah, doing silly things like racing downhill <laughs> because they're bored or something, or thinking that they don't have to clip into a safety line because they're feeling strong, thinking that they don't feel well, but they'll go ahead and keep going and become a burden on the whole team. And those are subjective or emotional issues that the Sherpa aren't familiar with, especially with Westerners, as much. And so it's it's important for them to learn how to read emotional signals as well as the technical signals. What actually makes a good outdoor leader? Sherpas, people back in the North America. Uh, they love it. That's... That's the hinge point. If they love what they're doing, they, they're internally motivated to be at their best. They commit to it, and they always find a way to take care of clients and themselves. If they don't lead their own life, self-leadership, they can't lead anybody else. But if they love doing it, they're already there. And you're applying a lot of this to CEOs and executives in your own consulting business, I understand. That's correct. The details of what they do day-to-day -day are very different on the surface, but the principles are the same. So in both cases, we're trying to get people to see, to manage out all the noise and craziness in any system. And in terms of interpersonal skills, adding some variables that will generate some opportunities. So what that means is a lot of people will do what they've always done. It becomes very comfortable. We can go on automatic pilot and not stop and think or analyze what we're doing. And others are overanalyzing, so there's paralysis analysis that they never allow themselves to use intuition or go on automatic pilot. So in both cases, we do coaching and mentoring in a way to integrate those two forms of thinking. So it's really about being creative and thoughtful, conscious, aware of a lot of moving parts, and at the same time being able to see what there are the objective facts that are tried and true that we can depend on. And let's analyze those and make sure we're not guessing, but we're actually intuiting what's going to work best in a grounded way. Well, yours truly, along with two of our other faculty members of our UNM Emergency Department International Mountain Medicine Center, took that flight from Albuquerque to Kathmandu and on to Fort Say. It was an honor to serve there. We had the opportunity to teach mountain medical skills as well as technical mountaineering rescue skills. And I have here Dr. Hans Hurt and Jake Jensen. Now you may recall that Jake is our Wilderness Medicine Fellow. Hans is one of our junior faculty. This is a recap of what it was like for us to teach with the KCC. Here we go, Hans and Jake. 
guys, I wanted to talk to you just about our experiences so that our listeners could understand what exactly did we do medically for the KCC? What we did is very much in line with what the mission statement of the KCC is. We were there to help improve their safety and well-being while they're working at high altitude in the mountains. So our biggest thing we wanted to give to them was how to be safe in the mountains, how to take care of yourself, and also how to take care of yourself if you need the care for somebody else. So most of these guys hadn't had much medical training. We figured about 10% had had some form of medical training in the past. So we took a very basic approach. Some of the things that, that we first did, even before before we ended up going to Nepal, when we looked back, we reviewed the prior curriculum that they had. And then we tried to look at it and, and adapt it and think, okay, how can we improve upon this so that when it's presented to this group of Nepali students that this is a little more culturally and language appropriate for, for what they're going to be looking at and how they can learn from it. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So what we did is we had to do a literature search and just kind of figure out what their needs were, and then didn't we devised our own curriculum, didn't we? Yeah, so after kind of doing the lit review to make sure that we were covering topics that you know, it popped up at the Everest Base Camp ED and in some other publications. We revised the curriculum to include a few more topics than what had initially been taught before and was in their prior manual. So with that, we, we made a new manual that had more pictures, you know, worded things in a different way and covered these other topics for things that would be common. Um, common complaints like blisters to burns to GI complaints and included a lot more, a lot more things in that booklet. They had a previous curriculum, but it sounds like we expanded upon it. And like you were saying, Hans, we made it a little more culturally, I guess, relevant, specifically tailored to their needs. But then when we rolled out this curriculum, we made the books and all that. Then we got the chance to try out this new curriculum, if you will, on the group of advanced students and instructors. Fortunately, we had that opportunity with the instructors because we learned a lot from it. So we were able to take about two dozen of the Nepali instructors that were going to be teaching the basic students and spend a half day with them updating their medical training. Some of them had had training in the past, but many of these guys hadn't had training for some years. And this was the first time at the KCC that the instructors were actually involved in this aspect of of training. So what we did is we did a lot of active didactics with them. We took a different approach where we would do some lecturing, but it was more of a demonstration and then having them do and then having a conversation with everybody about what we did, why we did it, and ensuring that they understood. Through this, we were able to gauge kind of if they learned well through this approach. And we're also able to ask them what other topics should be covered for the basic students. And then we're able to further kind of be prepared for the basic students that we would teach later in the week. He's got a headache. There's avalanche here. Rocks, rocks, rocks. Okay, safe here, yeah? Yeah. Okay, good breathing, good respiration, okay. He has a broken leg there, there's a broken leg. Circulation. Circulation, It was very interesting, wasn't it, fellas, to ask the instructors what did they want to learn. And it ended up that they wanted to talk about diarrheal issues and constipation issues. Now, that kind of took us by surprise. And that's, that's one thing. When we think about high-altitude medicine, right, we think about AMS, haste, hape, and maybe some traumatic injuries from falls. But we also have to think about, okay, these these guides are taking people trekking who are, you know, in a new environment, new food, so they're going to get dehydrated because maybe they're worried about the water not being safe, so they're going long days, and some of these people get, get constipation, and they're asking their guide what to do about it when they're out in this kind of really remote environment. So th those are some great things for us to think about and look what they have on hand in a lot of the local tea houses for whether it was fruits or fruit juices they had available that they could push that way or really push in hydration. And then just talking about, you know, some of the pharmacies that are up there in Namche Bazaar where if they needed to, they could get some laxatives. Um, and two, thinking about 
how all of those things would combine together so that they could prepare their clients for it. So not only teaching them how to treat these things, but how to talk to them beforehand so that their clients could be more aware of it and a little more proactive about preventing some of it. Some of the other questions I thought that were really interesting too that, that came up from some of the more experienced guys who worked at a lot of high altitude were really specific questions about medications. Because some of their clients would bring with medications that they could get over the counter in Kathmandu and they'd show up with a packet of, of zolamide, cetazolamide, and then they're like, hey, how am I supposed to take this? So was, these were like really pertinent questions that they, they deal with, you know, on every trek that they have and a lot of their clients. So we were able to really kind of answer some of those questions about specific dosing and then how to adjust it if people started to get symptoms. Some of the instructors said, you know, there's certain clients from certain countries like Japan, for instance, they tend not to talk about anything and they might actually just talk among themselves. And some of these people ended up, from what I remember, having constipation issues. It was just interesting to be able to even learn from some of these instructors some of the vagaries that we wouldn't otherwise get from the literature. Well, what about that thing with AMS and Hayes Hans? That turned into some interesting conversations because, you know, a lot of these guides are really experienced and recognize the symptoms for AMS when their clients, you know, don't sleep well or they're nauseous and they're not eating like they're supposed to. And what we talked about was, okay, how that progresses. You know, they they understood that, you know, really important to rest, sometimes to go down in elevation until those symptoms improve. And then as we talked about it, we talked about, okay, when does that AMS turn into more HACE or high altitude cerebral edema, dimagmapani jamnu? So where where is that border? So, and that's where it seemed like there was a fair amount of confusion that would pop up. So we spent a lot of time talking about how people start to lose their balance or maybe their, their cognitive thinking is really delayed and slowed. Um, and just what are some of those kind of neuro changes, neuro deficits, and how they can look for those in clients? No, I totally agree. They were quick to, you know, know the signs and symptoms of acute mountain sickness, Lake Lagnu, but definitely it took some time and demonstration for them to fully understand and grasp when that transition to HACE was. Fortunately, though, when it came to treatment, they all seemed pretty good. They knew that the best treatment was to get down as safely and quickly as possible and also knew some of the other things that they could do to help their clients or themselves if they were to come down with that. An interesting point we discovered is that some of these folks that took our course may have not had much medical experience, but they've summited Everest, quite a significant number of them. So it sounds like we've got some interesting projects in the future. And Daryl, that's a great segue too into to talk more about like the basic course and what we covered there. Like the basic students, when we just took some rough polls in the morning each day about who had had any sort of first aid training in the past, usually we found about maybe one, maybe two out of the group of 10 had had some sort of specific first aid training. What we realized too in kind of conversations with other instructors is just the, the education level for our students varied a lot. Like about 15, maybe 20% of the students hmm. didn't write in Nepali or, wow. you know, understand English either. And some of them, you know, maybe had only completed a couple grades of like basic school where a few of them would have like a bachelor's degree from the university in Kathmandu. But it was a really wide variance of education with pretty high um, number of like complete illiteracy. You know, then only about 30%-ish spoke English pretty fluently or efficiently. So it was a big challenge mm. for us to transfer all these ideas into Nepali. Um, a lot of the students helped with translation, and then we had some, some other people around, like Burba and a couple of nurses that were there as well that would help translate. That's where keeping it really active with a lot of demonstrations. Right, a lot a of lot pictures, of maybe movies, oh, yeah, a lot of scenarios. Absolutely. So much fake vomit with Alka-Seltzer, oh I can still taste well, it. The toilet paper scenario was the best, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, recovery position. Yeah, more people, more helpers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Come here. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So you have a patient. Uh, that's her. So living out of this. Okay. If you can, you can think out loud of what you're doing, then, uh, then that helps.
And along those lines, I would say that the course definitely evolved as the week went by. As time went and we learned more Nepali words, we were able to incorporate more of their native tongue, native language into the learning. And we found that that made a big difference in those who earlier in the week, we kind of thought maybe they're not grasping this. Those same students later in the week, we felt like got a lot more out of the course. You know, it was a key point, was getting more of the key terms in their own language. Yep. But what's really important too is that our pronunciation changed a lot because we first learned how to how to say knee during our exam, which uh -oh. is Gouda. Uh oh. But there's uh -oh. a slight change with that pronunciation oh to Gula, Gula, which means something in the middle very of the different. Legs. Yes, yes. Let's <laughs> yeah. not go there. And let's not to say we didn't continue to use the incorrect pronunciation <laughs> later in the week, as that did Just become to get a one laugh. of yeah Just one of our laugh. favorite jokes that keep them engaged later on. Well, it sounds like we've got some interesting possibilities for up-and-coming years, gentlemen, and any parting words for you? Well, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff in the future. I think with everything that we learned from doing this course, both with, you know, doing the lit review, putting together the new curriculum and the booklet, plus with this, you know, two weeks of working with the instructors and then working with all the students, we've learned a ton of different Nepali words so that we can really adapt the booklet and make it even more appropriate for the students with more keywords and languages in there and more pictures to really demonstrate everything in a way that'll, that'll help even the students who may not be able to really read or write either in English or in Nepali. So just to really help that language and the knowledge transfer be more efficient. So we really look forward, I think, to continuing to build the relationships with KCC and coordinating future, future things to help both the instructors develop their medical skills as well as really have it dialed in for future years with the, the students that come through there. Yeah, I completely agree. A lot of the instructors and a lot of the students were very open to what we taught them, and they picked it up quick, and they loved it. We had multiple individuals, you know, ask us, mainly the instructors, what more they could do. You know, how could they... In, you know, better improve their ability to provide medical care for their clients and themselves while in the mountains. So I think that's something that we look forward to is hopefully being able to collaborate more with KCC to give these instructors, these seasoned guides, more medical knowledge that they can then take with them into the mountains to help them and uh, themselves and others. Lastly, I caught up with Pete Athens, who is synonymous with decades of Everest exploration having summited seven times. Pete is frequently interviewed by broadcasters NPR, PBS, and National Geographic on current topics about Nepal and Mount Everest. He, along with Steve Mock, are the co-directors of the KCC. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't talk with Steve because he was really, really busy, but I was able to catch up with Pete, where he envisions the future of Everest climbing in the day of paid guiding. I'm Pete Athens, co-director of the Kumbu Climbing Center with my friend Steve Mock. been coming into the Kumbu Valley since the early 1980s, summited Everest seven times over a period of many years and summited the last time in 2002, but always happy to return to this area and to try to help promote both the uh, culture of the Sherpa and try to promote their, their overall skill level as importantly, their ability to deal with people on an interpersonal level and really become uh, very thoroughly guides to be able to do the mountain safely. So, Pete, you've had a lot of experience, even with the Nepali culture. But, you know, Everest has been, in some people's minds, kind of a climbing circus, if you will. Where do you see the future of Everest climbing? I think the future of Everest climbing is, is still extremely strong. One of the reasons that I continue to come back with the Kumbu Climbing Center is to really work with creating the next generation of guides who are not only going to be able to do every every aspect of this job, but also entrepreneurially will be able to find their own clients, be able to, you know, look for their look for their own partners to be able to make these businesses work and effectively kind of cut out the uh, guide services that are coming from the West. Ultimately I see Everest now, I, I know it has been in the past. In the future, it will always be a Sherpa's mountain. I think that they should be the people who ultimately are directing the overall process of people coming to climb on this mountain, and they should be the ones to be able to profit from it and then to be able to 
innovate and to bring bring people in to help them continue to do this more safely, more effectively, and with greater enjoyment for, for foreigners. One interesting thing I'm noticing is that there's a concern for safety on the mountain. And, for instance, you could have 100 people climbing up the Lhotse face on a fixed 8-millimeter line that's white on one single snow picket as an anchor. How do you think we could actually help to improve, as far as the Western idea, a more of a culture of safety in climbing? I think that we address, address exactly that problem at the Kumbu Climbing Center. We really take these these incredibly gifted athletes in many ways. They obviously have the physiology that allows them to excel at high altitude. And we try to supplement that with the technical knowledge to be able to create the route. Now, they, they here have also learned how to teach the ice fall doctors, the people who do one of the most tec- technically challenging parts of doing the South Call Climb. They put in 60 aluminum extension ladders, fabricate this kind of elaborate engineering feat that goes from about 17,000 feet to about 19,000 feet at Camp 1. And the climbers here, the directors and trainers and the instructors here, are all training the icefall doctors now. So I think just trying to upgrade their overall skill level, have them understand the limitations of the equipment that we have, and also have the sympathetic imagination to understand how their clients are going to react to being in a place that is very challenging. We're going to our V-thread, A-thread, we'll call it a Z-thread, we're at angle, up here. But this thing has to stretch, and it feeds more material than you can account for. We can take these loose ends, put them back. Now we're dealing with only one knot, okay? Our anchor legs are unknotted. They're not feeding material, okay? So anytime we can not put a knot there, better, okay? If this is too short, well, then we can bowl in, bowl in the ends, and we have a long piece. We can put a sling through here so we save material to extend. Well, that's our dispatch from the KCC. I hope it has enlightened you to possibilities. the idea of expedition climbing in mind, we're going to finish off by reviewing an article called Practical Tips for Working as an Expedition Doctor on High Altitude Expeditions in the last issue of High Altitude Medicine and Biology by Brantz and Metcalf. So if you might want to work on an expedition, read. Fairly frequently I get asked, how do I become an expedition doc or paramedic or physician assistant? So let's talk. Now the purpose of this article was to discuss high-altitude expedition jobs available to physicians. Now, I wouldn't call it a job in the classic sense, since oftentimes these are more volunteer-ish positions. You're really not getting paid, for the most part, to be the so-called expedition doctor. But realize that this is not an evidence-based paper, but I think the authors put things together fairly nicely, but not in detail, to start you out with regard to understanding the working conditions preparing for the expedition, common medical problems, and ethical issues. Personally, I think it helps a lot if you've had experience in climbing. Now, you can do an expedition among friends, in a research mode, or commercial expedition, which is covered here. There's a few questions that the authors discuss in a table that I think are salient. For instance, how long has a company been in business? And I might add, what's their reputation among the climbing community? What's the safety record? And will the company be providing full-service guiding? Who's going to be on the team? And how many clients and how many other types of supportive team members will be on that team? What is that guide-to-client ratio? And for you, who will provide the medical supplies? And how will those supplies be provided? Will you have to provide any of the supplies? What will they provide? Keep in mind that expedition companies will take care of transporting supplies in places like, say, Nepal, maybe by yak or by porter. But if you have to carry your own supplies, that's good to know. And you might have to carry the supplies of the team on your own back. Keep this in mind for expeditions such as Denali. And is there going to be oxygen? Who's going to be using that oxygen? How will it be set up? Is there extra oxygen extra masks, and do you know 
how to use the regulator. Will all team members, including porters and Sherpas, be required to have evacuation insurance? And let me add something, such as radios or communication devices, which the article mentions later, and how permits and visas are obtained. This can be really sticky if you're going into certain countries. You might want to know how the decision to evacuate somebody is made. Do you make the decision, or does that expedition leader, or is there shared responsibility or leadership on this or other crucial decisions? In other words, how much authority do you have as a medical provider? Now, I'm not going to mention much about the physical preparation process, but you've got to be fit. And having experience in the mountains, that's going to help you become that expedition doc. And for medical preparation, the authors recommend that you should have at least one year of working in general practice or emergency medicine. Now, that cannot be backed up. There's no evidence behind this, and I would intuit that you probably need a little more experience in that. Now, if you're in some other specialty, if you're residency trained in emergency medicine, or if you've had experience in surgery, trauma surgery, orthopedics, that might actually be some kind of a shortcut, but we don't know. You probably are also going to want to take additional training as well that I'll get into a little later. Now, the authors do mention various classes that you could take, advanced wilderness life support, diploma in mountain medicine, etc., but I'm not going to comment on these courses specifically. Here's something that you could keep in mind, a fellowship in wilderness medicine if your specialty allows. I don't think that that list is necessarily evidence-based either, but it's a good starting point. I would highly, highly recommend that you take a course related to mountain rescue and a survival course. And why? Because many of the medical emergencies may end up, yeah, minor emergencies, blisters, orthopedic types of injuries, upper respiratory illnesses. But if you or that client gets into a jam, knowing how to affect that rescue or how to survive is going to be very high yield and of extreme value to the expedition. And taking such courses will also help you know yourself better in an emergency. And I can't emphasize enough that having a positive, outgoing attitude will strongly work in your favor. <laughs> Keep in mind that these opportunities are not really that common. The authors use this word employment, although much of the time these are more volunteer positions. Many times you'll probably provide medical care in exchange for an all-expense-paid trip, which may or may not include airfare. Some may give less. Maybe they'll put you in first class seating, maybe last class. But keep in mind that the more the company provides, the more is expected of you. And even with an all expense paid trip without a salary, this is still considered employment, if you will. And you have to be careful of this. keep in mind that medical malpractice insurance is going to be needed. Now, if the group is large enough, maybe they'll pitch in. Maybe the company has some sort of an arrangement for med malpractice, but it's best to find out before you sign that dotted line. And keep in mind that laws are going to vary between countries, which includes people you're treating. You could be held liable according to the laws of the clients of their particular country of origin or wherever you're at. Check it out. Good Samaritan laws are probably not going to save your rear end necessarily. Unless maybe you're paying for the complete trip yourself as a guided client without any medical responsibility. And make sure that your own personal insurance, your own health insurance, your own evacuation insurance is going to cover you for mountaineering because many insurance companies do not cover mountaineering incidences. What about building up that CV? All right, you're new to this. You need a foot in the door. Now, I've found that knowing people is one of the biggest helps. But again, if you're starting out, you don't necessarily know anybody. So doing a fellowship in wilderness medicine, a diploma in mountain medicine, that could help. Working in a remote medical clinic, a search and rescue organization, or taking part in events such as races as a medical person and getting involved in smaller expeditions can definitely help. Getting involved in professional medical and rescue societies, maybe ICAR or maybe the WMS, maybe the... I don't know, International Society of Mountain Medicine, maybe uh, Travel Medicine Societies, whatever. Those could be of assistance by way of finding out opportunities and being able to socially network. And you know what? Social media, that might help. Now, I don't have the personal experience with social media of being asked 
to be the doc via social media. But try it out. Sell yourself and let us know how it works. Doing research and scholarly work would also be a good way to get invited on some of these trips. And even though it wasn't mentioned, I think it's really good. And it helps you get that foot in the door for people to ask you, hey, come along with us. Now, you've been invited. Now what? Well, you're going to want to know the objective of the trip, and you want to know your role specifically. Are you going to be a climbing and summoning doctor? Well, keep in mind that medical priorities take precedent over your own personal climbing goals. And you want to try to get to know the team medically and their experience level. Make sure that everybody's physically and psychologically fit and bone up on those medical conditions that you're not familiar with. If there are any local medical resources, the Everest ER, for instance, it's a good idea to check in with them and say hi. There may be some other medical outpost if you're not going to the Kumbu area. Listen to this. Clarify who's in charge of logistics for evacuation and who makes those decisions. And I'd also recommend that if you are a solo medical provider on expedition, find somebody trustworthy on that expedition that's going to help you in case you were to get into your own medical emergency. On a rescue mission, we don't vote, we don't question, we don't argue. You listen and do exactly as I say. We don't have time to cover medical kits, but keep in mind it should be ample depending on the circumstances with monitoring equipment. Be aware that some countries may actually prohibit you from carrying controlled substances into their country because you could land in jail for that. For instance, China prohibits ketamine. I also recommend a dental kit, and so familiarize yourself with how to use it. Also, brush up on your orthopedic and trauma skills and consider ultrasound training. Also, have the clients carry their own personal medical kits because it can be a little irritating at 3 a.m. for people to line up in front of your tent for ibuprofen. But having said that, carry an ample supply of those comfort meds for pain relief, cough, GI complaints. Keep in mind that the Kumbu cough affects up to 15% according to this paper, and high-altitude retinopathy is also pretty common. Do you want to know about altitude-related illnesses, hypothermia and frostbite? Bone up on it. Go. But don't ignore some of the more menial issues in your training as well. Knowing about wound care, abscess or hemorrhoid drainage, yes, useful. Well, listen, although the paper doesn't mention this, here it is. You've heard it for the first time. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cover your ears. Hear this. Here it goes. It may be good to know what to do in case of a, quote, sexually related emergency, end quote, happens. I don't know how to say that delicately, but prevention is key. Now, I'm probably going to get some trouble for what I just said, but being able to deal with this on an expedition, if people on the expedition have to do the act, is very important, and counseling safety is very important. Look, there have been known to be trysts that happen at base camp or in that large city that the group flew into on the way to the mountain. So, look, I'm just saying, just don't judge. Know how to improvise is also an essential medical skill. And lastly, carry that small survival kit that you've practiced with. This has definitely helped me with groups more than once. Lastly, the authors mention ethical issues, similar to what Krishna talked about at the KCC, making sure that Sherpas and porters are taken care of. Now, yes, you do want to know how Sherpas, Sirdars, and porters are treated. Make sure, basically, they're treated right and fairly. You also want to know what acclimatization protocol the company adheres to. Take pause working with a company that has unsafe acclimatization and climbing practices. And that's why, again, it's good to have the experience to talk to others and take that rope rescue course. I might add that avalanche training would also be of use. And know the company's policy on what to do with difficult climbers, those who refuse to get evacuation because they've got summit fever, or those who may have a hangnail and want to be evacuated by helicopter first class immediately. Being able to control these types of clients is really a good skill to have. Now, in the previous podcast that we had, we talked about doping. Doping in the mountains is a reality, and you have to understand some of the cultural considerations of your group. But some people are going to climb at all costs, no matter what, and they may be doping. Be aware of this. Have good medical records, but keep in mind that some people may not be 
and how should I say, absolutely truthful in some of the history that they give you. So just be aware that this may be reality. Now, if you're new to this, consider some means of personal communication with that special somebody that has more experience, whether that person is on the same mountain or by some other means of communication if that trusted mentor is on the other side of the world. And I'm obviously talking about somebody with medical experience. But the best advice is enjoy yourself, absorb the beauty, and celebrate the culture. It isn't the destination, but the journey that counts. With that, that's all the time we have for the podcast. So be well, be safe, and take care. Until next time. That concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by L. Severe. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org.